I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, from cocaine to aspirin, the medicinal qualities of plants are well known. And for plant hunter and ethnobotanist Cassandra Quave, there are still thousands more plants out there that have equal potential. I'm often asked about how can we pair Western medicine with traditional medicine? And it's not that these are at odds. Much of our modern medicine is thanks to traditional medicine from insights um, from those medicines and those ingredients. And later, nutritionist Dr. Marian Nessel on the health benefits of supplements. Roughly half to three quarters of American adults take supplements of one kind or another, despite the fact of evidence that supplements make healthy people healthier. The amazing potential of plant-based medicines versus the questionable viability of supplements, coming up on Life Examined. Over the centuries, plants and herbs have long been known to hold medicinal qualities, from peppermint to chamomile to aspirin and opium. Before the advances in modern medicine, like synthetic drugs and antibiotics, indigenous cultures developed an extensive knowledge of plants to cure most common conditions. So how much is known about the pharmacology of plants? And do plants still hold an untapped and significant medicinal potential? According to ethnobotanist Dr. Cassandra Quave, there are hundreds of thousands of species of plants on the planet, of which approximately 33,000 have been used historically in medicine. She's a curator of the Herbarium and Associate Professor of Dermatology and Human Health at Emory University, where she leads drug discovery research initiatives and teaches courses on medicinal plants. We're chatting today about her new memoir called The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Dr. Cassandra Quave, it's a pleasure to have you on Life Examined. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I, I want to jump into the book and and learn a little bit more about you. Um, your life is a fascinating one, and, and I wonder if you could talk about something that happened to you when you were quite young. Um, you dealt with a, a lot of medical difficulties that would inform so much of who you'd become and your work after. Um, can you tell us just, just a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I joke with my friends that I'm the million dollar woman because I've probably had over a million dollars worth of surgery mm. um, done to my body. Um, I was born with multiple congenital skeletal defects, um, including missing bones in my leg and shortened bones, primarily on my right side, um, and then later issues with my hip and back. And yeah, I spent a lot of my childhood in and out of the hospital um, having these corrective surgeries, including the amputation of my leg. And so a lot of my childhood was spent on crutches. So I had wicked, amazing um, upper body strength as a kid. Mm -hmm. I could out arm wrestle any boy <laughs> for lunch for lunch money, at least nice. until they hit puberty. Um, but I could also use those strong arms to climb trees. And I actually spent a lot of my early childhood really up in a tree reading books and just looking at all the amazing creatures that I could find in, in my neighborhood. Was there a part of you, you know, dealing with, with this medical condition that was probably also just thinking about how to heal one? oneself, how to get better? What, you know, what, what are the means of doing so? Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely curious about different ways of healing and also just trying to sort out who I was as, yeah. as a disabled girl. And it really took me probably until my mid thirties till I really found an, an identity I'm really comfortable with. Um, it's been a lifelong journey um, of finding myself in a way. And I talk about this in the book of, you know, when I was young, the prosthetic legs I had were really heavy, looked very artificial, um, created a lot of other health problems because I would get a lot of frequent um, skin infections just from the friction of, of, of running around with these, you know, socks that were really caustic against the skin. Mm. And so, yeah, I definitely thought about ways of healing, but it really wasn't until I got to college and I was a pre-medical student at Emory in Atlanta and in addition to taking those pre-medical courses, I started taking courses in anthropology and was introduced to these ideas that, you know, the practice of medicine actually differs from culture to culture. And not all systems of medicine are the same and not all, um, not all the disabled identity is the same from culture to culture. And so that's really was a tipping point for me that really, you know, spurred me on to look at some of these different cultures and start to explore more what is health and healing through different lenses? Yeah, yeah, no, that's beautiful. Was there a certain part of the world or a tribe or a certain 
environment in, in which these different healing practices took place that, that fascinated you? Yeah. So um, the year that I was um, a rising senior, I went off to the Amazon, wow. <laughs> which sounds which sounds a bit wild now. But at the time, it was the most logical thing in the world. I, I had just turned 21. I'd finished a course on tropical ecology, read this amazing book by Mark Plotkin called Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice that really just lit a fire of curiosity um, in me. Um, and I had this great desire to go and learn about other systems of medicine. And so the day after my 21st birthday, I had this horrible buzz cut. I went to <laughs> I went to a, a a cheap hairdresser said I need something cool for the Amazon right. and she gave me a, a men's buzz cut which I was not expecting mm. <laughs> but it actually did turn out to be quite uh, handy there um, where it's very hot yeah, very practical yeah yeah very practical <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so yeah I I went there and you know there was no contact with the outside world it was you know I was there for six weeks um, there was no email or messages or phones or cell phones you know at this time. Um, where I was. And it was just an amazing experience of immersion, learning from a traditional healer um, in the upper part of the Peruvian um, Amazon um, and really getting gaining better insights into how plants were used as medicine. And then also doing more reading as I returned home to realize that actually many of the plants that, that he was using as medicine have actually been the basis for some of our modern pharmaceutical drugs. And mm. that's when I really started to understand that a lot of the modern advancements in medicine actually have very traditional origins. Wow. Was there any experiences working with a shaman down there that, that kind of stuck out to you or certain plants you noticed they were using? Yeah. I mean, there were a number of experiences. I guess going back to this question of like healing oneself, yeah. I mean, um, like many amputees, I suffer from an issue called phantom pain or phantom leg pain, which is this very strange feeling of basically it feels like lightning bolts shooting down your leg. It's kind of your body reaching out for the limb that's no longer there. And I'd been suffering from these pains. And the healer I was working with, Don Antonio, asked if I'd like to be healed. And I was like, okay. Well, I didn't really know what that meant. I mean, I was also still very much a skeptic. I was very much in the modern medical paradigm of medicine is basically surgery and pharmacy and nothing else. And um, through this ceremony, you know, which did not include any hallucinogens, yeah, anything yeah. wild like that, it was just he he brought me to the edge of the forest and he began this ritual, which involved like kind of a an herbal... Um, kind of a bowl with like crushed herbs inside that he poured over me and he sang this song um, to the forest spirits and to me and went through this, you know, um, ritual, which involves a bundle of grass leaves. It's called a shikapa bundle. It's really important in indigenous um, healing practices in this region. And so it's this kind of, when he shakes it, it makes kind of this whoosh, 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 mm. whoosh sound. And mm. it was just really, um, it really centered me to where I could, I could really sense the rest of the forest, all the creatures that were around me, from the plants to the animals to the insects, and really grounded me. And it was in that moment that I first experienced kind of another way of, of practicing medicine, of really looking at the patient as a whole. And that, that was definitely a very um, infa impactful moment for me. So obviously this this was a, a major turning point, just as you're describing. And I wonder for you, what what began to happen next? And, and what was uh, happening already around you in terms of, of looking at potential new plants as medicines? I mean, was this was this like a fertile uh, area of investigation? What what was that landscape like? Yeah, I mean, at the time that I was working in the Amazon, other scientists were also looking at some of these plants, including some that Don Antonio used and taught me about. A good example of that is the dragon's blood plant, um, mm. which is um, the scientific name is Croton Lecherly. And this plant, when you cut into its bark, yields this blood red sap. And he used that sap to treat everything from skin infections to diarrhea to hemorrhages, basically, in people. And Years later, um, it came about that this plant and that sap um, was the cornerstone, the main ingredient, 
or the ingredient for um, an, an FDA-approved drug to treat um, a form of diarrhea, of non-infectious mm. diarrhea that we see in HIV/AIDS patients. And so it was, you know, a lot of these things have come full, full circle. I also, in the Amazon, had an experience where I was able to meet a hunter that used a traditional blowgun with arrow poisons, um, with dart poisons. And, you know, it really, I described this in the book, this moment of reflection, because modern surgery was actually advanced a great deal by the discoveries of compounds like tubocurarine found in these poison darts that were used in traditional hunting practices in the Amazon, those act as, as muscle relaxants. And now we, you know, surgeries today, we're able to better relax the, the muscle tissue when it's you know being cut into on the operating table because of compounds that were inspired by those arrow poisons. And, you know, I'm often asked about how can we pair Western medicine with traditional medicine? And the answer that I give people is that it's not that these are at odds with one another. They actually are intricately connected. Much of our modern medicine is thanks to traditional medicine from insights um, from those medicines and those ingredients. So give me a sense of of the amount of plant life out there and the fraction of which we understand of it. I, I, I just imagine there's uh, you're on to looking at, you know, a much greater variety of things than perhaps we even know about. Yeah. I mean, we have somewhere around 374,000 species of plants on Earth. Wow. And out of those, um, this just blows my mind. Humans over the centuries have uncovered roughly 9% of all plant life that we know of today as having some medicinal properties. 9%. So wow. Yeah. 9%. Yeah. 9% of all plant life. So that's 33,000 species of plants that are that have been used in the past and are even currently used in some form of medicine. In fact, in the U.S., when we think about medicinal plants, it's often with this idea of like a natural food store or a dietary supplement right. or an herbal right. tea. But the reality is, on Earth, billions, with a B, billions of people rely on plants for their primary form of medicine. It is their medicine. And I think we owe this to them to really take the time and resources to investigate the, the important questions around these plants, you know, to better understand how do they work? Do they work? What are the compounds inside of these plants that are responsible for the activities? Are they safe? Um, can these be leveraged into therapies that can help people around the globe? Um, and there's just an incredible amount of exploration to do. You know, when you look at the scientific literature, only a few hundred of these species have been really rigorously investigated. So there's a ton of work to do. And it's exciting um, for me because I know that, you know, there's a lot of space for students in the future to explore. Is there, are there any folks that come to mind when you think about people doing this work or those you've met in the field that have been inspiring or interesting in any way? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, from historic figures, and I write about him in this book, there was a scientist um, who really we credit today with this, with with developing a better understanding of a lot of the psychedelic medicinal plants yeah. like peyote, um, like um, psilocybin-bearing mushrooms, um, ayahuasca in the Amazon. His name was Richard Evan Schultes, and he's on the academic training lineage. He's my great-grandfather through PhD training uh, okay. lineages, if you think yeah. of it that way. Uh -huh. um, but, I mean, he was just this incredible character that went to the Amazon and stayed there for, I think, like 13 years and just kept sending samples back and is one of the greatest explorers of our time hmm. um, and, and just did a tremendous amount of, you know, to develop a better understanding of many of these traditions that unfortunately today we're losing as as resource extraction from some of these places goes deeper and deeper into the forest and many of these um, these communities are, are placed at risk along with their with their systems of knowledge. How supported is this type of research that you're doing? Is is it something you feel that the mainstream medical community gets behind or academic institutions? What do you think? You know, <laughs> I wish it were more mainstream in some ways. It'd make my job a lot easier. I think that um, throughout my career, I've had to do a lot of re-education. Um, when, I, when I first got into ethnobotany, you know, in, in the early aughts, when you went to 
on the web and you Googled ethnobotany, all that you would get were videos and, and articles on psychedelics. And that mm. was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there was nothing about all these other ways that plants are used. And today, I think a lot of scientists and physicians um, and the lay public have really lost sight of not only where many of our foods come from, but also where many of our medicines come from. Um, a lot of the, the, the compounds, the pharmaceutical drugs that are listed under the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, these are medicines that are essential for healthcare um, providing locations. Um, many of those were either directly derived from or just originally discovered in plants, or there are compounds that have been inspired by those natural products. So there's on one hand, this amazing history where we know that plant-derived compounds have served as the building blocks for new medicines. But we really stepped away from this starting in kind of the, the 1990s. Um, there's been a shift more and more towards synthetically produced compounds. And when it comes to infectious disease, at least for antibiotic discovery, that shift has proven um, quite, you know, quite a failure. Um, we don't have any new antibiotics from that approach of just looking at synthetically derived molecules. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that it's time to take a moment and pivot to go back to natural products and to start by taking a really targeted approach. I mean, if you think about it this way, if people have been using these plants and other resources from the environment, fungi and so on, to treat infection for centuries, in some cases millennia, maybe just maybe there's something there mm -hmm. <laughs> that's worth looking at rather than just taking a random shot in the dark, looking at some different soil samples. Yeah. Stay with this question of antibiotics and skin infections. I know this is something you're very uh, concerned about and, and something that you're looking into. C can you explain that a little bit more, the, the kind of fundamental problem that we're up against right now? Absolutely. So, I mean, right now, everyone's mind is on COVID-19, which, you know, has been a huge global killer, over 5 million dead already, um, 2 million in the first year of the pandemic. However, there's a silent pandemic that's happening underneath or underlying this that's been arising for a while, and that's the arrival of the post-antibiotic era. We've only had antibiotics um, for actually less than a century, and that's yeah. just a blip in time when you think about the whole span of human medicine. Um, and we currently lose around 700,000 people globally due to untreatable antimicrobial resistant infections. That number is projected to reach 10 million a year by the year 2050. That's five times the number of deaths we had in the first year of COVID-19. So we have a serious problem. We also have an economic problem because the model for developing these drugs is really, you know, completely broken. And you could have many other podcast guests that are that are better experts at the economics um, speak about that. Yeah. Um, but it is a problem. And so I think from my from my perspective, my goal is really to try and help fill that that discovery pipeline with some of these um, you know, innovations that we're, we're coming to through a better understanding of both traditional medicines and the, the plant ingredients that are used in healing infections. So let me make sure I have this right. I mean, there are bacterial infections that are, you know, so sophisticated and strong that, that antibiotics can't clear that up anymore. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely correct. And so you're now thinking if antibiotics is not going there, we're going to have to look at alternative treatments. So give give us some examples of how that could work in terms of natural medicines. Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can learn from these traditional medicines. So I'll give you an example of the Brazilian pepper tree. Um, in the state of Florida, it's a hated weed. Nobody likes it. It's on mm. like the noxious weed list. But in Brazil, it's a part of the pharmacopoeia and has been used there for centuries. We found records going back to the 1600s about its traditional use for treating um, ulcers and kind of non-healing wounds. What we discovered in that plant, in the fruits in particular, were a suite of compounds that work not by killing the bacteria, but by interfering with the ways that they communicate with one another. So microbes, when they're when their individual cells are at their weakest, and so what they do is when they get into your bodies, they communicate with one another and they say, hey, there's enough of us, let's ramp up production of toxins so we can start destroying these tissues and get some food, right? Because they're thinking about their survival. Well, what these compounds we found from the pepper tree do is they shut down that communication pathway and if, in effect, 
block all of those toxins from being produced. And, you know, I think that's that's an important lesson there, that when it comes to traditional medicine, we're not always so focused on killing the disease cause, but rather restoring balance in the patient. And so if you can knock out these um, defensive and offensive mechanisms of bacteria, that gives your body the time to clear out the infection. Or perhaps it's combined with other plants that, that work better to clear out the infection. Um, and so those are some of the types of things that we're exploring. We're also looking at plants that can improve the activity of existing lines of antibiotics, basically by blocking um, antibiotic resistance pathways. So there's just, just so much I think that we can do when we, if we could just look more at some of these um, plant-derived compounds. And this sounds, I mean, it sounds interesting. It sounds exciting. And I, I want to, though, bring in the kind of cultural piece here, which mm-hmm. I, I'm sure is something you have to go up against as well, which is when some people hear of, okay, there's a more natural way to do something, their minds goes to, you know, what you find in a health food store, or that any disease can, you know, be treated naturally, quote unquote, or just through building the body's immune defense. And suddenly we get into a territory of whether vaccines are important or not, if they're quote unquote unnatural. I mean, it's just, it's a really slippery slope in terms of where this stuff goes. And I I just want to give you some time to talk about this in terms of, you know, where, where we're at when we think of these ideas of what natural healing is. Absolutely. Well, I think that first of all, the the ways that we use quote unquote natural medicine in a Western context, which is through the use of, you know, um, supplements and pills is very different from how plants are used in traditional medicine by traditional healers. Those are two night and day things. Um, And also, you know, healers recognize that not all plants are safe. There are many plants that may be medicines in some contexts, but that can be deadly poisons in others. Um, And this is one thing that I really try to do with any of my kind of op-ed writing is to educate the public about some of the dangers of of using things from nature that you're not well informed on um, that could lead to some bad health consequences. Um, You know, the other thing is too is like, there's huge untapped potential in plants, but plants aren't always, or single plants, not going to be the solution to everything. I get lots of questions about cannabis, and I think cannabis has tremendous potential for helping people deal with pain and helping people deal with with other medical issues, but it's not necessarily going to cure, it's not going to cure cancer, it's not going to cure HIV, it's not going to do, you know, these, all these things that people hope it will do. Right. Um, so I think, there's nuance there. This is and, a, yeah. I, yeah. I just want to say, I mean, you could, it could be cannabis or it could be kale or it could be another thing. There are, you know, mm-hmm. right? There are these plants that come online. And I think that we see them as a panacea suddenly. There's this idea yeah. that whatever this new thing is, CBD or whatever, this is going to be, this will take down cancer, your sleep issues, your anxiety all at <laughs> once. And it, yeah. I mean, it's laughable in a sense, but it, it seems to be the way that our kind of hive minds like to work. Yeah. And that's, and that's a problem <laughs> because there aren't, believe me, if there if there were some like magical panacea that cured all of my ails, I would be in a much um, healthier position myself as someone that deals with, you know, with chronic pain. I think that it's, it's good that people are curious about plants. I think that it's natural to have a desire to take control of your health. I think that a lot of our, our sense of control over our bodies is, is really limited. And I think that by educating yourself on on plants, that's a great way to start. But also, really, I encourage people to start in the kitchen. There's so much that you can do to improve your overall health just by eating a more plant-forward diet, increase your consumption of some of these culinary spices, because guess what? Historically, spices that we take for granted today, including things like black pepper or nutmeg, I mean, at one point, those were incredibly valuable and considered a panacea and in, in the eras that they that they first started, you know, being traded across the globe. And there 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 are some great health benefits, you know, some easy ways to increase your your kind of anti-inflammatory levels in your diet are to combine certain herbs together. So if you think about, you know, the consumption of turmeric, if you combine turmeric with fresh ground black pepper, there is a 
kind of chemical interaction that improves the overall absorption and bioavailability of the anti-inflammatory compounds found in turmeric um, into your body if it's combined with some of those compounds for black pepper. So, you know, I think cuisines in a way have sorted out a lot of these healthful, um, health-promoting combinations already. Is your hope that someday these new plants that you're discovering will be taken, you know, as, as seriously and will be as rigorously tested as any other type of, say, synthetic medicine that's produced? Well, absolutely. I mean, we are, we do have a product that I've sublicensed out from my company, Phytotech, that's under development to become an ingredient in a, a medicated bandage that is undergoing or is being prepared to go under FDA approval, like the, the whole process mm. um, as a medical device. Um, there are examples, like I mentioned, of the dragon's blood um, tree that led to a FDA-approved drug. So there are different ways that botanicals can be regulated. You have the supplement industry, which is non-regulated, and then you have FDA-approved botanical drugs, which are regulated and go through all the rigors of a synthetic you know, produced drug. So um, my hope is that, yes, I mean, my hope is is kind of dual in nature. On one hand, I want to continue to communicate back all the findings that we find um, in our laboratory studies back to the community so they can be really informed of, of how these work and if they're safe. And I also, my hope is that someday some of these discoveries um, will make their way through the FDA approval pipeline so that they can go to benefit more people. And so that the, the the societies, the cultures, the locations where this knowledge originates can also benefit from the economic gains of such a, an innovation. Which is kind of a, a, a fun big question. You know, we, we've covered some shows looking at just the wondrous nature of trees and mycelia. And I, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about the kind of the hidden life of plants and uh, things about them that we may not know or uh, the complicated chemistries or natures of these, of these organisms. Yeah. I mean, I think what's important to note is that plants, while they may look like solitary organisms that, you know, they're sessile, they don't get up and move away or from threats or move towards things that they need is they are constantly communicating with the outside world through the release of these incredibly complex and beautiful molecules. You know, when you think about the evolutionary perfume that goes into the scents of different flowers, let's, let's take two opposing flowers to think about this. You have the smell of the rose, which is lovely and attracts certain types of pollinators. And then you have the very intriguing scent of the corpse plant or the Titan arum, which smells like a, you know, a sack of dead rotting flesh. And why does a rose smell like a rose? And why does this other plant smell like, you know, a rotting corpse? Mm. It's because they've come up with these blends of chemical signals and each are attracting a different type of pollinator. And so you have those types of, of signals going out into the environment all the time. And we've barely scratched the surface when it comes to understanding those very complex mixtures. You know, one of the biggest challenges to discovering and understanding how plant medicines work is sorting through that incredibly complex milieu of, of compounds. And so in a single leaf tissue, you may have hundreds of unique molecules. And so it's literally like sorting through a huge haystack looking for the needles that are responsible for the activity. And I think what's exciting about the current century is that we finally have some of the advanced chemical tools that are enabling us to start to read that language of life. And I think it's just an incredible era to, to be alive, to be able to start reading and decoding what plants are saying to one another. Cassandra Quave is professor at the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory College and the author of the new book and memoir, The Plant Hunter. Cassandra, I really, really enjoyed hearing about your research and your life today. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Still to come, the billion-dollar natural supplements business. We all take them despite any scientific evidence that they do any good. And why you nutrition expert Marion Nessel joins us next to tell us why. This is Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. A recent study found that a whopping 81% of adults between the ages 35 and 54 take dietary supplements, despite any scientific evidence that they do any good. And this is big business. The industry is worth 40 to $50 billion a year in the U.S., with the average American investing between $50 to $60 a month. Nutritionist Marion Nessel says we should be skeptical of any medical claims, but that psychology also plays an important part in our health, and that perhaps supplements are not really about science, but more about our belief systems. Dr. Nessel is a New York University professor emeritus and joins us now. Welcome. Oh, glad to be here. So we're talking about uh, really the, the power, the importance, the brilliance of plants. And of course, a lot of people are pushing plant-based diets. And I'm curious, though, um, this begins to tip into other places like the idea of vitamins or supplements, also what we think of as natural things to consume. What do we know about this large, booming supplemental industry? G- give us your general thoughts on it. Well, let me start with the plant business because that's your starting point. Uh, We know without question that people who eat a lot of plants, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, um, all of the the beans, all of those good things are healthier than people who don't. Um, And the basic dietary recommendations these days are for a largely, but not necessarily exclusively plant-based diet. Um, so we know that, but we're human. We're reductionist. Uh-huh. Um, and so the the goal always is, has been to be, f- try to figure out what is it about plants that makes people healthier. And plants have been taken apart into all of their different components. And lots of them seem to be associated with very good health. Although most of the research shows that plants are associated with health, but the substances that are isolated from them don't have anywhere near that kind of effect. And the, the research is, produces such ambiguous results that it's very difficult to come to any kind of conclusion. But that has not stopped the supplement industry from bottling every conceivable nutrient that you can think of and selling it for its health benefits, whether scientific studies demonstrate those benefits or instead give ambiguous or fuzzy results. And the, it, this makes this the supplement industry fascinating because roughly half to three quarters of American adults take supplements of one kind or another, despite the fact of evidence that supplements make healthy people healthier. There's really no evidence that shows that unless you have a defined vitamin or mineral deficiency, that supplements are going to make you any healthier than you already are. But that doesn't stop people from taking them. And it doesn't stop the supplement industry, which is now worth 40 to $50 billion a year in the United States, from marketing these products absolutely everywhere. And it doesn't stop people from swearing by supplements because supplements make them feel better. That there's no question about. People who take supplements say they feel better when they take supplements, whether that's because the supplements themselves are doing anything or whether they have a powerful placebo effect is something that we can argue about. And and I should say right off the bat, I'm in favor of placebo effects. (laughs) They work really well, really, really well. And if all it takes is a supplement to make people feel better, I'm for it. Yeah. Because there's so much about today's society that makes people feel bad. I wonder, Marion, I mean, has has some level of a supplement industry been around forever? You know, uh, people that are are pushing various forms of of, uh, medicines or foods that, that claim to provide some benefit that maybe we don't have the rigorous scientific backing of? 
Well, we can go back 5,000 years to Chinese history um, and talk about yin-yang and other Chinese cultural practices that absolutely believe that certain foods made you healthy and certain foods made you sick. And if you had this disease, you were supposed to eat these foods. And if you have that disease, you're supposed to eat other foods. So there's a very, very long history of this. But the isolating of individual components really didn't come become um, possible until they were identified. And that didn't happen until the early years of the 20th century, basically, when vitamins were discovered one by one and the functions of minerals were discovered but one by one. And in the first half of the 20th century, one after another nutrient was identified as being essential in the human diet. That made supplements possible because then you could isolate vitamin C or you could isolate the B vitamins or you could isolate iron or uh, some other mineral and produce those in pill form and put them in bottles and sell them either by prescription or non-prescription. Um, and this created an industry that was very, very concerned about making sure that people had access to these without prescription in as large quantities as they wanted. Uh, because you could sell more if they were in large quantities, um, regardless of the evidence demonstrating that they were good for anything beyond dealing with deficiencies of those particular nutrients. And I should say, if you have an iron deficiency, taking iron is a really good idea. And if you, ha if you live in a geographic area that doesn't have iodine, um, making sure that you're eating iodized salt is a really good idea. Um, but beyond that, the claims for prevention of chronic disease, the astounding claims for prevention of COVID-19, uh, those are not backed up by anywhere near the same level of research. Yeah, and, and it brings up this question, is there any legislation surrounding this industry or any rules surrounding the claims that are made on these, you know, quote unquote, natural substances that, that, are, that are beneficial for us? Oh, there definitely are. Mm. And that's a fascinating story in itself because the FDA, in its infinite wisdom, decided fairly early on that these products needed to be regulated. There was some evidence that taking excessive amounts of supplements was bad for your health and caused problems. Um, they would, The FDA was worried about the kinds of claims that were being made for supplements, and they tried to regulate them as strictly as they possibly could. Um, the industry rose up and organized one of the best public relations campaigns I've ever seen to of people to write their congressional representatives that these things must not be regulated. And in 1994, Congress passed the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, which essentially deregulated supplements huh. and essentially told the Food and Drug Administration to keep hands off supplements. Mind your business. This isn't your business. The assumption was that supplements were safe in the amounts offered to the public, that the market would uh, determine what, what was sold and what wasn't sold. Um, and health claims on supplements were deregulated in a in kind of a funny way because uh, what the law authorized were something called structure function claims, uh, which are claims that a supplement can support a structure or function of the human body, supports healthy kidneys, supports mm -hmm. a healthy heart, supports immune function. And health claims that say that are allowed, whereas the kinds of health claims that are allowed on food are subject to much tighter restrictions. You cannot say that a food prevents heart disease. Um, and you can't really say that a supplement prevents heart disease, but you can say that a supplement supports a healthy heart. Now you tell me what the difference is. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, nobody, yeah. nobody who isn't a lawyer or a lobbyist can tell the difference. And so those kinds of claims are allowed on supplements. One that once they got allowed on supplements, then the food industry said, hey, this isn't fair. We get to use them too. And that essentially deregulated uh, 
health claims across the board. So for any kind of claim for a supplement and and health, you want to have a certain amount of skepticism, particularly health claims that are called qualified health claims. And these are ones that just always make me laugh where there'll be a health claim and then it'll say the FDA doesn't have any inf- doesn't have any evidence to back this up <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the on the package. But none of this stops people from taking them because, as I will say again and again, people feel better if they take them. Yeah, but but are there cases where it goes too far? I mean, can can taking too many, uh, too much of a certain vitamin or a certain mineral actually be harmful? Oh yeah, absolutely, but not very often. Mm. Um, and there are really very few instances in which uh, taking too much of a supplement does harm. There have been examples of vitamin A if, for people who eat polar bear liver. Well, okay. not too many people eat polar bear liver, <laughs> All right. um, which has really a lot of vitamin A in it. They have symptoms and problems for that. Um, and there, there are some other vitamin D and enormous excess causes problems. Hmm. Um, and there have been other examples, but the problems with supplements are really pretty rare. Uh, the, the other thing that the law did was it basically kept the FDA from enforcing rules about making sure that what the package label says is in a supplement is actually in the supplement. And there have been any number of examples when um, agencies have gone in and looked when supplements contain things that they're not supposed to, they actually contain pharmaceutical drugs but they're not labeled as such. Um, But again, these are relatively rare. They happen, but they're relatively rare, and it depends on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, how seriously you worry about this. Um, I just find it fascinating that there's so little research that backs up the benefits of supplements for most people, and yet people swear by them and absolutely feel better if they take them. They're doing something about their health. They're worried about their diets. They don't think their diets are providing enough nutrients. There's no way to tell whether your diet is producing enough nutrients. Um, you know, I, I mean, people don't really understand how little of essential nutrients are needed in order to prom- to be healthy. But you know, yeah. I, I, people feel better. They know they're doing something for their health. They're generally not harmful. Um, and it's hard to argue against placebo effects. I, I think they're really important in health. They're fascinating. And, and uh, you know, what I know about them, and perhaps you know more, it's just things, for example, fascinating studies. Uh, if the drug or, let's say, the supplement costs more, we think it might be more effective. Mm-hmm. I've seen studies that if the pill is larger, we think it might actually have a greater benefit. There's these kind of fascinating psychological impacts of the placebo effect that I, that I just always amaze me when I read about it. Well, this actually was a fantastic study that was done at NIH. Um, When Linus Pauling was writing about taking 10 grams a day of vitamin C in order to prevent colds, um, a group at NIH wanted to test that hypothesis, and they got volunteers who worked at NIH to agree to uh, take either vitamin C or a placebo for some period of time and to record the number of colds they got and how severe the colds were and how long they last lasted and this was this was just a fabulous study so the um, the investigators did the study the reason they looked at the results the results showed without question that um, vitamin c caused the people who were in the study to have fewer colds and less severe colds. But the investigators were very good investigators, and they noticed that the study had had an unusually large dropout rate Mm. from subjects in the study. So they went back and interviewed the people who had dropped out, and they said, oh, I knew I wasn't taking vitamin C, or I knew I was taking vitamin C, and I didn't want to continue. Um, So then they went back and reanalyzed the data as to whether people knew they were taking vitamin C or knew they were taking the placebo. And what they discovered was that the people who thought they were taking vitamin C, whether or not they really were, uh, had fewer colds and less severe colds than the people who thought they were taking the placebo, whether or not they really were taking the placebo. 
So I thought this was one of the best controlled placebo studies I'd ever <laughs> seen. It proved beyond question that vitamin C was a placebo for colds. Yeah. A myth we still, though, live with, right? Get sick, go get your vitamin C, and yeah. you're going to feel better. And doesn't it make you feel better? It makes me yeah. feel better. Yeah. Yeah, and I think because you're, you're, you're bringing up something big, which is the idea of taking action on something in regards to our health. And I, I, I take your point. If it's one that we think is beneficial and we believe in it, there's value to it. I, I think yes, but it's not science. Um, you know, it's something other than science. It's a belief system. You know, we know that belief systems are very important in health. Um, you know, we've known this for thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, the, just the fact that a doctor tells us that we're going to get better makes us feel better. It certainly makes me feel better. I'd much rather hear that than, than hear from a doctor that you're going to get worse. Um, these kinds of psychological things are really important in health, and, and supplements fall right smack in the middle of that. Um, and so they're not about science, they're about belief systems. Um, and they are, you know, they're billions and billions of dollars a year. I, I looked at the website of the um, Council for Responsible Nutrition, which is the trade association for supplement manufacturers. And I think it's got somewhere on there that the average American spends between 50 and $60 a month on supplements. Hmm. Um, this is big business. It makes me wonder if there is something, though, that can be a bit dangerous about this stuff. You've talked about how perhaps misleading some of the claims can be, the lack of evidence, and the idea that, that is widely circulating that, oh, you can, just, you can create such a strong immune system through products that uh, you'll be immune to uh, COVID-19. I mean, that, it just seems like we're entering dangerous territory considering here we are still in a pandemic, still low relatively vaccination rates. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's unfortunate if, you know, people think that supplements are natural when they're not. They're manufactured. Many of them are manufactured in China. Um, and, you know, they come a long way. <laughs> Big footprint. Um, and the, um, you know, the idea that these are going to take care of your immune system so that you don't have to get vaccinated is very unfortunate. And I believe there have been cases of people who have gotten very sick uh, despite having taken supplements. And they're, you know, I mean, in a sense, they feed people's delusions about healthcare issues that they don't want to deal with. Mm. Uh, for one reason or another. Uh, you know, we know what vaccination does. We've got more evidence about vaccination um, than, you know, I can possibly believe. There's studies that come out every single day. Uh, but the studies on supplement con supplements continue to produce ambiguous results. And when I see multiple studies of, let's say, vitamin D and COVID prevention, and some show prevention and some show uh, no effect whatsoever, I'm thinking this means it doesn't have an effect, or if it doesn't have an effect, it's such a small effect yeah, yeah. that it's not worth paying attention to. And most supplement studies are like that. The more, or, or to put it another way, the more carefully a supplement study is designed and the better it's controlled, the less it shows. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, and that tells me nothing's happening here. Mm -hmm. And that what you're dealing with is some, something that is an extremely powerful placebo. You know, and the, the studies of placebo show that um, if you give somebody something and you give them a placebo, in order to have the something be better than a placebo, more than 30 or 40 percent of the people who... Um, are taking these things have to show benefits mm -hmm. because placebo effects are so powerful. To me, this also raises the, some interesting questions around something I think we're seeing a lot of now, a lack of faith in the traditional medical systems around us in the U.S. A lot of people, it seems, are... Uh, are more open to taking advice from an herbalist or someone in the supplement world than, than their doctor or what they learned at a hospital. How did we get to this point? Because the distrust is, is incredible. 
Well, I have to say I have a great deal of sympathy for that position. Have you dealt with the healthcare system lately? (laughs) Um, It's just awful to deal with. Um, it's you can't get past a receptionist, you can't get an appointment. If you have an appointment with your physician, you get to have 15 minutes of face to face time in which your physician is flat in front of a computer, typing things into a computer and not even looking at you. Um, so of course, people don't trust the healthcare system. Um, you know, the, the healthcare system has changed in ways that make it considerably less personal. Yeah. The personal quality has been lost. And to me, the personal quality was what worked. I mean, there was something about laying on of hands, having a physician touch you, having a physician assure you that you're going to get better. Um, or that the physician is going to be with you during this period when you're going to not feel well um, or even die uh, was something that was extremely comforting. We don't have that level of comfort anymore. So people are looking for comfort in any way they can find it. And I, I hope they do find it. Yeah. I think that's a good point. We're looking for help. We're looking for guidance in, in a very big, scary world. And if, if this is where it is, this is where it is, I guess. Well, Marion, I got to ask, do you take any supplements? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I really and truly don't. No. The, um, you know, I, I do follow dietary principles that I truly believe are well backed up by research. I eat a largely but not exclusively plant-based diet. I'm an omnivore. I try to balance caloric intake with expenditure. I don't drink too much. I don't smoke. I don't take bad drugs. You know, I, I follow my own dietary principles. I don't find them hard to follow. I'm a major foodie. I really love yep. food. I'm one of those people who lives to eat. To eat. I just love food. Yeah. You know, it's something that gives me pleasure several times a day Um, and I've never thought that I needed supplements Um, so I don't and I don't recommend them unless some doctor has diagnosed that they're low in a particular nutrient and the nutrient that doctors are diagnosing these days is vitamin D and that makes no sense to me for anybody who lives anywhere where there's sunshine, you know, get out in the sun, you're going to get much more vitamin D than you'll ever get from a pill. Um, And the, uh, you know, so it's, um, I, I tend to be a supplement skeptic. I've been speaking with Marian Nessel, Professor Emeritus at NYU, author of a number of books, including Soda Politics and What to Eat. Marian, thank you so much for, for the time and for being with us on KCRW. We appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. All right, that's all we got for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find us on the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please keep the reviews coming. They make our week. We love reading them. And thank you to all of you that have taken a minute to write in. It means a lot to us. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll see you soon. Have a great day.